You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. It is Sunday night. 7.15 7.15 Eastern time as we record this. Chris Fedor, Joe Varden with you. Joe, for the second straight week, buddy, we actually have a guest. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if we've become more popular doing this podcast, but more people are coming on our podcast, and it doesn't just have to be me and you talking back and forth. Well, that's true, but what I was going to say that we have absolutely nothing left to say. Between <laughs> us. Um, but... But even if we did, we would certainly put it down uh, for a week, uh, set it aside to have this next gentleman join us all the way from wine country, um, where his skin looks better, his smile is wider, he's light on his feet, he is, uh, he is just living the dream, and of course I am talking about none other than uh, former Cavaliers general manager, 2016 championship general manager, championship team building general manager david griffin joining us again from wine country thank you very much guys i am really really happy to do it i can't believe we've had a guest two weeks in a row and i'm second but that's okay (laughs) i'm I'm gonna be all right and everything is true about the lead-in by the way except i will never be and everyone who knows me knows this is true i will never again be light on my feet I may be lighter on my feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so, you know, a couple of things about this. Uh, first of all, I feel like we had to, we had to work up to asking you to join. We had, um, <laughs> we, had right. uh, we had Tanya and, uh, and Dan uh, from the LA times. They're, they're going to be, you know, it's now their turn to cover LeBron. So we thought we'd talk about that and that worked out well. We didn't set the, anybody on fire. Um, and we didn't step on our feet, so we thought we would work up to a, a big time guest. And yes, this is this this is working. I see, the way I actually look at that is start with the topic that everyone wants to listen to, which is LeBron, and then talk <laughs> to the other guy. So, <laughs> so, I mean, what the reason why I want to have you on is to talk wine, and and oh uh, boy, as you know, I mean, I really, yeah. really, really like it. But I feel like I'm um, I'm Paulie from Goodfellas when they go to him and they say they want him to invest in the restaurant. And he says, what do you want from me? I don't know anything about the restaurant. I just know how to sit down and order the food. Like, I, you know, I know how to open up a bottle of wine and I like it, but I don't, I don't know enough about it to even really sound smart. So what have you learned about these grapes in the last couple of years? And, uh, and just tell us a little bit about how you and, and your wife have kind of ventured into the, the wine industry. 
Joe getting into the heart of yeah, why so, we're having Griff on the podcast, by yeah, the way, folks. Right, right let's not mess beginning. around. I appreciate that. Um, so the first thing I've learned is I know nothing, and I do everything Meredith tells me to do. From a wine perspective, that's certainly true. And it might even be true in a, in a more <laughs> overarching concept. But certainly from a wine perspective, I'm like you. I, I know what I like. I know what I enjoy drinking. I don't know if it's any good. I don't know that my palate could tell you anything's any better than anything else. But I love the experience of pairing wine with the meal and being present in that moment. And again, that all comes from Meredith. And it's ironic, we were just in Cleveland uh, for Kobe Altman's wedding, and Meredith did two of her wine and wellness events. And it's the first time I ever actually saw the event itself. I'd never been there for it. And I, I realized that we are living everything she's talking about. So it's been a real blessing to get to come out here and, and sort of be of a mindset to be more present in my own life. It's, it's been a real blessing. We need to know now, I mean, since you brought it up, um, worst dancer, either from your staff or yes. maybe somebody that Kobe's hired, wor worst dancer in the Cavs organization, go. Wow. Boy, that's a really, really good question. I, I don't think I can say anybody's bad. I, I would have told you my wife wasn't very good, but according to Trent Redden, she made first team all wedding because she danced <laughs> for three hours straight. So, wow. We're, we're good right now. All right. We're good. I, I don't think I could call anyone out as a bad dancer. I, I really couldn't. And I can tell you that that wedding reception was the single most perfect party I've ever attended. And it wasn't ostentatious and over the top. It wasn't because they threw so much money at it. Yeah. It was because the spirit of everybody there was so in the moment. It was truly awesome. They, Kobe and Rachel did a remarkable job. Here's the question, though, Griff. We know that Kobe prides himself on his fashion. He wears Gucci shoes or Prada shoes. He is always dressed to the nines and always wants to put out a, a positive statement with his outfits. So did he go? We shared that. Yes, we, I, we shared that, by the way, Chris. I just didn't look as good in any of it. <laughs> so you tried. You just didn't pull it off as well. Is that what you're saying, Griff? That's right. I was spending the money and putting it together. I just didn't look very good in any of it. So did he go wine and gold with the color scheme for the wedding? Absolutely not. There was no <laughs> wine and gold color scheme. However, and this means more to me and should mean more to Cavs fans than anybody else, when the chuppah was about to fall down because of the wind, the two people that jumped up to save it were Larry Nance Jr. and Jetty Osman. So he has the hearts and minds of the people that matter the most. Wow. Wow. Well, we, um, I, I, think, I hope uh, that Kobe comes back to work on Monday because um, Gansey just doesn't answer his phone. And, uh, and, 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 you know, cause I, I've been off vacation really. I mean, I haven't done anything in weeks, but, uh, we got back from the beach, uh, nine or 10 days ago and, and, you know, all the Cavs guys have been off for the wedding and whatnot. So, yep. um, and you know, here we have, we have this guest that just wealth of knowledge. I mean, we've got all the hard hitting stuff and, and we're, I know we're kind of tiptoeing around the campfire here, but. We do need to talk Browns because in Griff's tenure in Cleveland, he, um, you know, he kind of, he, he, the, the Browns kind of endeared themselves to him and, uh, and he's kind of in our corner on that. And, uh, and both Chris and 
Griff um, are Sashi Brown uh, honks, which, you know, we can sit here. <laughs> um, but, but Griff, uh, you know, I mean, there's some optimism here in, in, in Brownstown. And uh, I just want to know if it's felt all the way out there on the left coast. Yeah, you know, there is. And it's funny, like, I, I think the Browns fandom in, in part comes from the relationship with Sashi. When I, when I met Sashi and spoke to him for the first time, I was a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believed in the concept that they were applying to the NFL side. Um, it's not an accident that they had Sam Hankey work as a consultant as well. Um, I, I think they laid the groundwork for all of this optimism. So, you know, to a huge degree, Sashi died for us. Um, and, and I think that that's meaningful to me because I, I know how hard it is to do what Sashi was doing. Um, and if the Browns succeed in seeing it through, it will be in large measure because they had so many draft picks this year, it would have been difficult to screw it up. Um, and they had so much cap space, the same could be said for that. So I'm really excited about their future, and a lot of it's because Sashi was part of it. So what do you think of what John Dorsey has done with what Sashi left him? You know, it's funny. I'm so patently not a football guy. It's impossible <laughs> for me to say. Like, draft night, I was terrified that we were passing on Saquon Barkley. Right. Mostly because as a fan, there's very few people I've ever enjoyed watching run the football more than him. I think he's just a complete beast. So yeah. to me, I looked at it and thought, well, if Terod Taylor can get us through the next couple years and we have this guy that's going to be the greatest running back in the league, maybe everything will be wonderful. And then we draft Baker and Saquon goes somewhere else. And I'm apoplectic for like seven minutes, like a fan would be. <laughs> and then it dawns on me that I know absolutely nothing about football and I'm just going to blindly trust in this. And to be honest with you, the, the first preseason game that I saw Baker play in, I was really, really impressed. So I share the optimism. Let's put it that way. There you go. Griff. Yeah. I mean, you of course would never, you would never believe this, but um, on, on draft night uh, we were in Indianapolis uh, for game whatever of the, of the first round. And again, I know this will, will shock you, but we were at a bar um, and had had, uh, you know, a, a cocktail or two. And I actually wore my Browns Dante Whitner jersey to the bar that night um, and was yelling at the screen as they drafted uh, Baker. So there you go. The only thing that would be surprising in that part of the story at all is if the shirt was not a schmedium showing off your gun. <laughs> Yes, yes. I worked on those this morning. Well, listen, we, um, I have more like, you know, nonsense to get into with you, but uh, we, we should probably at least do some work here for a little. Uh, yeah. You know, it's sure. so, so good to have you on. So good to hear your voice. Uh, but of course, um, we're talking here with, with David Griffin, former Cavs GM, now uh, an analyst uh, with NBA TV. Uh, Sirius Satellite Radio and a bunch of other stuff. Those are the ones that I can keep track of. Um, and, yeah, so LeBron's gone. And uh, that's kind of, as you know, when LeBron's here, he affects everything. He's the, the sun in the universe. Uh, everything kind of spins around him, and now he's gone. And so that that's what the Cavs have to do, is they have to move on without him. And, and um, just the obvious question is, how, how do you think they've done with that so far? Well, I think they've done a remarkable job of, of turning the page and, and sort of moving forward in, in a way that, frankly, we had talked about from the beginning of LeBron's return. Mm. Because LeBron kept signing one-year deals, 
it was a pretty clear indication that there was another shoe to drop because LeBron's smart enough to know from a basketball perspective that that was debilitating in terms of long-term sustainable team building. And he knew that. And he still continued to do that. And because of that, you were sort of left to, to recreate magic every summer and pull a rabbit out of your hat at trade deadline because you were going year by year. And now, by virtue of the fact that they don't have to play that game, the fact that their books are set up to be really clean into the future, even accounting for the fact that they were signing Kevin Love, the fact that they've, they're going to have their pick should it be a high-variance pick that they want to keep, they're teed up to turn the page pretty quickly. And that was always the plan. So I'm excited that that plan still exists. And I love the fact that they re-signed Kevin, a player who I think is going to play his best season of his career this year. They re-signed him to a deal that, as big a deal as it is, is probably a value deal for a player that's as productive as he is. And they've kept open their optionality in the form of a really good human being who wants to be there. See, I always say the Cavs, because um, I want to drill down something you said there. My, my thing is the Cavs won once be, uh, and no more than that because Durant signed with the Warriors and changed everything. And there was nothing you guys could have done to stop that, and there was nothing you really could have done to counter that. So, so that, that's my explanation. But you have said um, pu- publicly now, and you've said it privately a hundred times, that LeBron's um, refusal to go to sign long-term deals. Now, he did sign one multi-year deal with the Cavs. Uh, it was the last one you signed him to. Um, but uh, his refusal to go beyond two years was, uh, was harmful to the long-term team building in Cleveland. I, I wish you could explain that a little more. So, first of all, the Kevin Durant thing – we could have done something about it and from the standpoint of if we were in a position to get in the bidding, the problem is Kevin was attracted to the joy engine that the warriors are. Mm. The, their approach to everything is so light and, and, and joyful that he was attracted to that because he was living in a very heavy environment in Oklahoma city. And so going to golden state was like a breath of fresh air. So that we never could have addressed. We could have put ourselves in position potentially to have max cap space that off season if we decided that the template we were building from wasn't good enough to win with and that we needed to be more mindful financially. And Mm. so I think the lesson that we all learned the day it was announced that KD was going to Golden State was you almost can't dream big enough in the NBA now. If you're not living your life with a mindful eye towards the next best opportunity to win a championship, then you may not be doing your job. And what we did was invest very heavily in a group we believed could win a championship. And had had we been healthy the first year we went to the finals, I think probably win too. And I I think from that standpoint, it, it would have changed everything. That team was the best in the league in my mind at the end of the year, were it healthy because the Warriors weren't the Warriors yet. You know, remember in that finals, that's when they found the death lineup. That's when they found Iguodala. And that was necessity being the mother of invention. And they had to come up with a way to beat that beleaguered version of us. So if we were healthy, I think we win that one. We Um, managed to pull something off epic with the 3-1 situation. And that's the only reason Kevin Durant goes because if they win the championship, KD probably doesn't 
go there then. So everything had to fall exactly right for Golden State, but they played their cards the right way and it, and it worked. And I think relative to the, the LeBron portion of it, everything changes if you think he's going to be there forever and you're playing for sustained runs of the championship rather than chasing each individual title and we must win now. It's a totally different world. Griff, did his contract situation, though, ever ever affect the things that you could do from the standpoint of free agents that were willing to go and join you guys? Like, I know that you had salary cap limitations sure. because of all the stuff that you had, but did, did guys say, hey, we don't know what LeBron's going to do, we don't know his future, so we're not going to come there? Well, sure, and it, it's sort of chicken or egg, right? So right. if you knew LeBron was going to be under contract, you may do something different the previous trade deadline to create the cap space that you know you can go get free agent X with. Mm. But that's not the reality we had. So you couldn't ever get appreciably worse in your own mind for the future by saying, okay, well, we'll replace this player in the offseason with whatever max free agent it might be. And the other part of it was, even if you had max cap space, nobody's going to sign a long-term maximum contract if they don't know they're going to be playing with LeBron. And he wasn't going to tell that to anybody either. So it ends up being a very difficult situation. If you acquire Paul George, by way of example, if you know LeBron is staying, you probably know you can convince Paul to stay. But if you don't know that, then you're just risking everything on a hunch. And while Dan Gilbert and his ownership group invested more money than any team in history to win a championship, and they made winning possible because of that. Even they couldn't take that risk. LeBron actually hasn't answered this question yet, uh, and he's going to have to at some point. I, I, I hope it's with me, but, um, you know, somebody could get to him uh, when they do training camp before we make it out there. Um, it's just why he left Cleveland. We, we know he wanted to be a Laker. We know, we know he thought it was cool. Like he he's in his mind for a long time. He he's thought mm-hmm. it would be cool to be a Laker, but why he actually left Cleveland again? Now, I mean, you you had had a feeling that he was going to do this. Um, you know, you knew uh, pretty much as soon as you won in 2016 that that this year would be the year that he would be gone. Um, so, I mean, without you know, speaking for the man um, who we all know very well. Uh, but what, why do you think he did this? Why, why did he leave Cleveland again? You know, it's really interesting. So I, obviously I have nothing but the ultimate respect for him. And I, I think he is clearly the best player of his generation and probably several other generations. And look, nobody even knows my name if he's not from Akron. Mm. And I'm very, very consciously aware of that. And I I think one of the reasons that he felt compelled to do this is that in setting up his post-NBA career, when you've got a production company that's as prolific as his is already, there's no better way to establish yourself in Hollywood and announce your presence with authority like signing with the Los Angeles Lakers. So I think this has as much to do with what comes next as anything else. I think his family enjoys the lifestyle there, and I can't say I blame him. It's beautiful. But you don't go about the process of buying a home in L.A. 
and continue to upgrade your home in LA while you're living in Cleveland without some intention of going to LA. And so that was fairly clear, I think. And so you, if you were paying attention, mm -hmm. you could add everything together and know there was going to be a next step. And I think the fact that the Lakers signed Contavious Caldwell Pope the year previously that they did for the number that they did gave them the ability to legally tamper yep. by letting Rich Paul see how incredibly good Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka could be at, at selling a vision of the franchise. And so I, I think it all coalesced to going to the Lakers, but mostly it was what comes next for LeBron. What do you think about it from a basketball standpoint, Griff? You know, it's funny. I, obviously, if you take – we said this before when we were in Cleveland. If you take LeBron off our team and put him on any lottery team in the East, mm -hmm. he's probably the favorite to go to the finals. I don't think that's true in the West. Mm. And so because they were a lottery team and perennially a lottery team, the West is so good and so deep. In order to say that a team that was – what were they, 10th or 12th in the, in the West, 11th? You have to jump teams to get there. Well, there were teams between them in the playoffs that are really good. Yeah. Let alone the fact that the teams that were in the playoffs have to fall out. So I think they make the playoffs. I think they're a 6, 7, 8 seed. And I think in the West that makes it complicated. So forgetting for a moment that they've added pieces to the mix, just LeBron's presence alone, they're 6, 7, 8. And I don't think they've augmented that in a positive way at all. So they're still six, seven, eight. Hmm. I don't like the fit of the pieces they have at all. I, I don't like the ball dominance that they have in the form of guys that can't space the court and shoot. Um, but at the same time, I do like the vision of taking the burden off of LeBron in the regular season to do less so that when you get to the playoffs, he has more in the tank. I, I like that concept as he ages. But you can only put this plan in, in effect because he signed a multi-year deal. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to win this final. They have to be in a position to make sustained runs at winning the finals over the life of his contract. And they can do that by taking an initial step this year. And I think that's what they'll do. So, all right. So we've, we've come to the part that we, uh, we two tough, the two tough questions here. Uh, the, the first one is, um, you know, everyone listening knows that you were here. And then uh, in the summer of 2017, I believe, you no longer were. And the question, the first question is, if that had never happened, uh, would LeBron still be a Cavs today? I don't think so. I don't think you can say that. I mean, I certainly don't believe that to be the case. I would love to believe that. My mother would love to believe that, but I don't <laughs> think there's any validity to that. Um, I was there when he wasn't signing multiple-year contracts. So I, I don't think there's any anything that would suggest that's the case. Do you think Kyrie would have stayed if you stayed? Do you think you would have been able to work that out because of the relationship that you had with Kyrie that he maybe wasn't able to build with the other members of the front office because time didn't allow it? I don't think that's fair either necessarily. The, okay. the one thing with the Kyrie component of it for me was my situation. And I knew, you know, Joe alluded to, you know, knowing LeBron was probably gone after we won the championship. My situation was similar. Once we won the championship, I knew in my heart that there was going to be something else, right? That there was yeah. a next step. And so I, 
I think everything changes if the person in my position is empowered and under contract and all of those things moving forward, because then it's clear when you go to any player and any agent, forget Kyrie, who's in charge mm. and, and who is going to have the authority to make decisions. And you know what to trust in San Antonio for 21 years at Pop. And until this Kawhi Leonard situation, because Pop was always the gangster, he was able to convince people that it will be the way he needs it to be to win. And so people bought into that. They bought into trusting Pop and trusting that front office. And then the whole Kawhi Leonard thing happened, and it took San Antonio into the real NBA for the first time in 21 years. This, this is what it's like now in the NBA to – to try to convince a player to believe in you. They weren't able to do it for the very first time. But because he's always been there, there's always something in an agent and a player that you can trust in. And I think in the absence of that stability, it makes it very hard for anyone to feel compelled to believe in anything. Mm. And so that has nothing to do with me per se. It's just the nature of these things is that with the exception of San Antonio maybe Boston, the New England Patriots. There's not very many situations that have the level of continuity that when things go awry, you're able to say, listen, I've got this under control. And players need to know that they can invest in that person. And it's just less and less common. So if you had never left, um, you were saying LeBron wouldn't be here anyway. Uh, but what what would this team look like if it, if this were still a David Griffin team? Would we be looking at at, at Hill and and Clarkson and maybe Rodney and and those guys? Um, which I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. Um, I, I've said I still think they can make the playoffs, uh, which would be historic after losing LeBron. Um, but but how would this how would this look if if you had never left? Well, I think to a huge degree, it all depends on the cards you're dealt, right? So, I mean, everything mm. is predicated on everything else. You know, I, I wasn't dealt the cards Kobe was. I didn't have to deal with the things that Kobe and his staff had to deal with. And so it's to say that it would look different, I, I have no earthly idea. I may have played the cards the same way. You know, I'm, I'm really close to Kobe and Mike Gansey and his staff, and I care about those guys a great deal. And I think given the cards they've had to play, they've played them very well. So the only question is, were I there, would the cards have been different in any way? And I, I can't answer that. I, I don't know. Well, you bring it up. There was a lot of uh, conversation among Cavs fans, Griff, as soon as LeBron left and before Kevin got the contract extension that he got about what's the best direction for the Cavs. Is it fight for a playoff spot? Is it continue trying to compete? Or is it because you don't have a first round pick? and it's protected because of the Atlanta deal and all of the ramifications of that, is it better for this team to try and bottom out, hang on to that draft pick, and continue to build through the draft? So you think that the approach that they took to try and compete for this playoff spot is the right one? So it's interesting. It's, the, the pick is protected in such a way that if they decide midseason, if they yep. decide prior to the trade deadline, you know what, we're not good enough. And we would rather not give up the 17th or 18th pick in the draft. We're going to tank. They can probably do that. Mm -hmm. they, they have the optionality to do it. They didn't have to make that decision now. 
But if they did make that decision now, they would have had no optionality for actually being better and growing Colin Sexton in an environment where winning matters. And that's the only way you can really fairly judge a young point guard is can they impact winning and losing? Alonzo Ball was done an incredible disservice going to a team that was tanking. It's, it's not on Lonzo to make a team that doesn't intend to win, win. It's, it's not on him. And mm-hmm. so, and that's a bad example, actually, because the Lakers didn't have their own pick. But it happens all the time. Right. So forget I said Lonzo, but pick another <laughs> lottery player, right? Sure. Devin Booker. Right. Devin Booker's a better example. Devin Booker just got maximum money, having never proven he can be the difference maker in a team that wins games. Well, now the Cavs get to find out if we have an elite offensive weapon like Kevin Love's facing the court and we give Colin Sexton the opportunity to make plays to win games, can he do it? That's really meaningful. Kyrie didn't get that when he started. Right. We didn't have a player like Kevin Love with Kyrie. So now they're going to learn something about Colin that they never could have learned if they tanked initially. And if it goes incredibly well, and they're in position to give away the 22nd or 23rd pick, then they could even augment the group. And as long as they don't do it by adding money to next year's books, they're still in position to go get maximum free agents. So I think what they did was play to the greatest optionality that they had. And that's something that Dan Gilbert very much believes in. It's something that I would have learned from Dan and Nate. Optionality is in and of itself a weapon in the league. And they have that now. Going into last season, Indiana was picked by Vegas to win about 31 games. Uh, 30 mm-hmm. games. And, of course, they ended up fifth, one game behind the Cavs, and gave them a run for their money in the, in the playoffs. Um, do the Cavs have that in them? Or is – when you talk expectations, are you talking tip of the – like t- top ceiling eight seed? Yeah, so – I think a big part of this is that the East isn't very good. And so when you look at what they have to do to make the playoffs, I don't think there's a six, seven, eight team that you can unequivocally say is even definitely a good playoff team. So I think what they have to do is find a way to be the best possible blend they can be of the talents they have. And I know Ty Lue and his staff can do that. You know, the person I'm most excited for this season is Ty. Because the guy is a hell of a basketball coach. And there is no championship without Ty Lue. And LeBron would tell you the same thing. So for him to be in the situation he's been in this whole time, where all he could do was be wrong, and if you lose, it's Ty's fault, and if you win, it's LeBron's credit, I, I think it's just the most excruciating experience for a coach to have. I'm really grateful that Kobe and Dan allowed him to take the time. Not allowed him, really forced him to take the time that he needed to get right physically last year mm-hmm. because I think he's a revitalized version of himself and seeing him be on the court again in sweats on the floor working with guards and we've been able to see that now in terms of the Instagram and all of those things T. Lou's going to be the best version of himself he's ever been as well so when you have that in the form of a guy who can be that good out of timeouts yeah, I think you can be a six, seven, eight seed, and I think you could be a really difficult out. If you're six, it's not a given to me that three beats you. So you, when you hired him, uh, when you hired Ty, you told us that he was 
the hottest of commodities, um, that he was a savant, uh, that he was just, I mean, you know, just brilliant. And of course, as you said, uh, he, you win a championship and there isn't one without him. Um, but then, you know, the next two years happened and of course they, they both ended in the finals. And so only one team did better when it was, when it was all over. Um, but and it was the team that added Kevin Durant to a 73-win team. Yeah, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> this team, um, you know, th- this team was 29th in defense. Um, you know, Dwayne Wade. And, and they were worse than that, by the way. Oh, yeah. That's misleading. They were worse than that defensively. It was awful. So, and, and, and I, like, I'm of the opinion that that actually had a lot more to do with LeBron than it did Ty, but, but – what Ty has a bunch of detractors out there, so I'd like you to speak to them and just maybe explain if Ty's such a good coach, what happened all these nights in the regular season the last two years when the Cavs just weren't very good? Yeah, so I think LeBron did have a lot to do with that from the standpoint of he took a lot of plays off on the defensive side. That's that's how he was measuring himself so that he could have enough in the tank to do what he needed to do offensively. He had an incredible burden last year, having to make plays for everybody. You know, no Kyrie meant that there was no secondary playmaker. And that that never really got addressed because Isaiah Thomas just never worked out. So they didn't have a secondary playmaker. So in order for LeBron to be what he needed to be on the offensive end, he was taking a lot of plays off defensively. And it's hard to scheme lack of effort, right? And they mm-hmm. got lack of effort from a whole bunch of people. But what I think was important for Ty, and this was always the case with us, when, when Ty takes over the defense, which is what he does in the playoffs, he turns the water off of whatever the best weapon is the opponent, the opponent has. Mm. And that's because he's so good at taking away what you do best. We're going to beat you because he has enough time to prepare. There's a reason Toronto had to change as radically as they did. And a big part of it is Ty Lue. We scored out a timeout at the end of those games almost all the time. Mm -hmm. They never did. And he completely took away the two greatest weapons that Toronto had. That's all Ty Ty Lue. That's his genius. So the same person that they're faulting for the faulty defense throughout the regular season is the guy whose magic makes it possible to get stops in the playoffs. So when he takes over the defense, things change radically. And a big part of that's because LeBron buys into Ty Lue. So he does what Ty Lue wants him to do. And I think moving forward, Ty's going to have to learn from that. And he's going to have to understand, just as you are now intimately involved with the guards on the floor, this defense has to be yours again. And if it's not going to be his, they could struggle again. All right, we've got plenty more coming up with David Griffin, former Cavs general manager, now with uh, Sirius XM NBA Radio, also does stuff with Turner Sports, NBA TV, TNT. We'll have more with him coming up, but first. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Many people in Northeast Ohio are forced to make tough choices. Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make tough decisions, which often results in hunger. But you can help. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals 
Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. All right, Griff, you were talking about Ty and the things that that make him a good coach. Um, Based on the way that the Cavs played for the four years with LeBron, how do you think things will be different for the team this year? And and what do you think Ty's go-to system is going to look like? You mean beyond them not going to the finals? Yes, beyond that. <laughs> um, so I, I think, first of all, player development is going to be much more of an emphasis there now than it was ever able to be before. Uh-huh. And, and that's sort of Ty's sweet spot. He's really, really good with young players, helping them understand what they're seeing on the floor. And that just wasn't an emphasis of what he did. So I think this will take advantage of, of one of those gifts for Ty. I think systematically they're going to play through Kevin Love an awful lot. I think they're going to take advantage of the fact that the Kevin Love that was in Minnesota is still every bit as talented, probably more so, probably stronger, but he's also wiser and he knows how to win now. He didn't know how to win before. So I I think the experience he's had playing with LeBron has made him a better version of himself. And I think Ty's going to play to a great degree through Kevin's strengths and to Kevin's strengths and try to rely on Colin a little less in the beginning and let him get comfortable um, playing to the the strengths of the rest of the guys that are there. But I I think you're going to see them move the ball quite a bit more. Um, I think you'll see them move bodies quite a bit more because the idea now is that they need to be young and fresh and athletic. And I think they'll play to that. You bring up Kevin. Why do you think for a lack of a better term, he doesn't get much love? Oh my God. (laughs) I see what you did there. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, well, I, I think to a huge degree, Kevin's, Kevin's his own worst enemy because he's such a good guy and he's such a real human being. He becomes an easy target. So he's not going to be the guy in the locker room who throws things and intimidates you. So when you're going to blame things, you blame it on Kevin because he's an easy target. And to some degree, because you always expect more of him, that brings some of it on as well. You know, Kevin led the NBA in 15 point first quarters in the time that LeBron, Kyrie, and Kevin were all together. Wow. And then the game happens and goes away from Kevin, and you lose sight of the 15 in the first. And the reality is, he's still that dude. In mm. fact, he's better because he's that dude within the framework of knowing how that guy has to look on the defensive end. And that's where he's so maligned. Everybody believes he's a terrible defensive player, and analytically, that's not true. He's an elite defensive rebounder who starts your transition because of that. He's also the best outlet passer in the NBA, and he walls up very well defensively, so he's not a shot blocker. He's not a defensive playmaker, but he's not a liability on that side of the floor, and I think a lot of the Kevin slander starts on that end of the court. And, again, if they stopped going away from him after he had 18 points in the first, people might have a different impression of him. So I'm excited to see what he's able to do now with the expectation of carrying the team on him a little bit. Game's on the line now. Uh, LeBron's in, in Los Angeles. Um, so game's on the line for the Cavs. Who's taking the shot? Wow. Um, we couldn't figure this out. Great question. Chris and I have I'm going to say Rodney Hood. All right, so Rodney, 
I asked you already about Indiana uh, and could the Cavs be that. Is, is, does Rodney have enough t- – he's not as good as Victor Oladipo. I'm not trying to say that. Um, but, but is Rodney the Cavs' version of, of Victor insofar as if Rodney – if he reaches his talent, are the Cavs a different team than everybody thinks they are? Oh, for sure, yeah. No, no question. And he's – so I, I think the thing about Rodney with this Cavs team – Mm-hmm. is that emotionally the expectations are going to be more in line with what his maturity as a player will allow him to do. Yeah. He's uber talented. But when it's put up or shut up and the only thing that's going to mark success is winning a championship, he doesn't have that level of confidence yet. But I think this Cavs team is going to let him find that in much the same way that he was so good with Utah Members of their coaching staff told members of our coaching staff the year before I left, he was more important to them than Gordon Hayward. Whoa. Well, that came from the fit for Rodney at that point in his life emotionally. And I think the Cavs will be more that fit for him. So Cavs fans are going to see the best of Rodney Hood because he's capable of being what they need him to be within that framework of expectation if that makes sense you know Kobe really well and you obviously know Cavs owner Dan Gilbert really well the expectations for the team for the four years the past four years it's been championship or bust it's been all in it's been sacrifice assets in order to get as much talent around LeBron as possible taking that weight of expectation off of them how do you think that's going to change things and what do you think are realistic expectations inside that building now well I like I said, I, I think they can be a six, seven, eight seed. And if that doesn't work, then the expectation is they have the optionality to pivot and, and they will pivot. That's, that's what they do. Dan's not going to just sit idly by and not be very good and sort of be in the middle. They'll, they'll come up with a path that works. And I, I think to a huge degree, they're all in a situation now where the lack of expectation and the ability to look at this in a more mindful, sustainable way, Mm -hmm. while you have to acknowledge you won't win as much in the short term can be somewhat refreshing for everybody because you get to try something different. It's a very weighty feeling when the only thing that marks success is winning a championship. That means 29 other teams are going to fail every year and you're very likely to be one of those 29. And so the, the feeling of that, the, the heaviness that that brought in that organization with that group of players was, was difficult. And I, I think all of them now are going to get a little bit of a breath of fresh air. And that's not to say that it's better air because you'd always rather be in the finals. But emotionally, there's a little bit of a burden lifted. Why is Rodney not signed yet? Well, I think Rodney's agent probably recognizes what we were just saying. It's a perfect situation for Rodney. And if you sign a deal in the range of Marcus Smart, by way of example, and I have no idea what they're even talking about, but if you were to take that deal as Rodney's agent, you think, well, that's great. But if Rodney goes out and averages 20 points a game and looks like the player he was in Utah before the trade, I probably married myself to a bad deal. I think that's bringing a lot of this to the to the conversation because there's so much cap space next year available that he knows there's somebody would pay him 
if he has the kind of season they believe he can have. And conversely, the Cavs are looking at it as in terms of keeping their optionality open and they don't want to sign him to a, a big long-term deal. And I understand that thinking as well. So he's not signed because of the situation with cap space for next year as much as anything else. So I've, as you know, I, I've been, I'm heading into my fifth year doing this and this situation with David Nwaba is unlike anything I've seen um, where it's basically, it's confirmed um, by myself and others that he is going to play for the Cavs. But this confirmation comes without any deal. They don't know how many years he's going to play there and they don't know for how much money. So how can we have that? How, how is it that we have a confirmation he's going to play for the Cavs without any agreement whatsoever on, on the money and years of the deal? So I can tell you that's a new one for me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what that would I don't know what that would signal in a player as capable of helping them as David Nawaba is. You know, ordinarily you would take that approach with the player that you know you want and who desperately wants to be with you, and you may not know if they're going to be on a two-way deal and you may not know if you're going to start them in the D-League, but you do that with a player that's at a much lower level than David Nawaba. If they were able to get some agreement from David Nawaba that he would be there and be part of any scenario whatsoever, that's an amazing feather in Kobe's cap because I look at David Nawaba as the kind of player that when you're trying to be a dirt-working, overachieving, fly-around athletic team, you want guys like that. And he could be a really valuable piece. So if he's on a deal where he's just sort of taking whatever they're giving him, that would be remarkable. It's strange. I mean, listen, the, the Cavs still have their uh, – they have their full mid-level, and they also have their biennial. Um, you know, they're not going to use that on him. Uh, that's, too, that's, inex, that's too low, I think. But the full mid-level is like eight-point-something or other or a four-year deal worth something like $37 million, which that's – I think that's Marcus Smart money there. I mean, Nawaba hasn't played to that level he's yet. He's not going to get that. No, he's, he's not going to get that. But and I he, wouldn't be surprised if it was biannual-ish, um, okay. just because there wasn't a lot of space available. Right. So I, I think he was of the mindset to put himself in a situation where he knows he's going to play a lot. Um, and he knows his skill set's necessary. And if he can do that within the framework of having optionality for next year, maybe that's what he's doing. But I obviously have no earthly idea, but that would make the delay make sense, I suppose. Can you imagine having this conversation with me five years ago and me trying to, to discuss biannuals and mid-levels and all those things? I could imagine it, but it would have been a whole lot more of me talking than you. Um, but I, I think you, coming from the political world like you did, you did a remarkable job of asking all the right questions. And I, I think in the situation that you're in, um, learning on the fly when LeBron James is around, you may be in a better emotional position now as well. Because the expectation isn't quite the same for you either. It's different, man. I mean, you know, the last, I mean, the last four years, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's something to be a part of anything where LeBron's flag is the flag on the plane. Yep. Um, and then if, you know, you add in kind of the, the group that we had here from a, a press corps perspective, I mean, you know, 
we were like the Rat Pack, uh, really. Um, who, who, who would you assign, if you think of the guys in the media corps, uh, David, who would you assign to a Rat Packer? Like, who, who is, what? you know, uh, Peter Lawson and, or Loeffler, and, and who, you know, kind of go down the line there? Wow. So this is remarkable, Joe. I don't know that you've ever aged me out of a conversation, but it's hard for me to picture all of the members of the Rat Pack. The only thing I can tell you with absolute certainty is that Lloyd is Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> because he, he's the only one I can picture pulling off the chacon, chacon kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am so lost in this conversation right now. Can we mix in some Backstreet Boys and NSYNC so it's more <laughs> like well, there's right. So, so you've got Peter Lawford, as I mentioned, and Joey Bishop. Uh, what? There's, there's Sammy Davis Jr. and then uh, Dean Martin from Ohio, uh, and of course the chairman Frank. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to we'll have to chew on chew on that. Um, what 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 are your plans? Uh, first of all, why are you not a general manager now? I thought you I, I had you signed by like four teams, and and here you are still messing around in wine. No, you know, it's funny, actually. I, I think you mentioned after we won the championship, you knew, you knew certain things. And I had a very real understanding that sometimes the fit's not right where you are and, and you need to find that fit. And you know, and both of you guys know a lot of what I went through from a medical standpoint and all of those things. And to be honest with you, when you get removed from it, you know, I was in the NBA 25 years. And when you get removed from it enough, to recognize that there's real value in your job providing for your life and not being your life. Mm -hmm. It makes it hard to imagine going back to a situation where the job is your life, unless it's exactly the right situation for you. So I'm, I'm grateful that I I've been afforded the opportunity to be selective and uh, to a huge degree, Dan really made it possible for me to do that. Um, you know, our, our situation was, we just weren't the right fit but it didn't end in a negative way at all. There was no malice on either side. And you know, I'm grateful he allowed for me to be in a position where I could make the right decision for me. So being able to watch it from not afar, because you were still a member of the media and you were doing stuff on NBA TV and Turner and stuff with Sirius XM, but just not being in it the way that you had been for so long, how did that change your perspective of the game? If at all, and, how can that help you, I guess, if you do get the itch to, to go back in? Well, it's funny. We talked about it relative to um, the Browns. You know, mm -hmm. I know unequivocally I don't know the answer, and I'm very comfortable saying that. I, I don't need to know who they're supposed to draft. I don't need to know who should start a quarterback. I, I don't need to know that. I get to just be a fan, Yeah. And, and I love that. But because I did the job, I'm very mindful of what I don't know and I have incredible appreciation for people who make that their life. So on the media side, applying that lens, that's been really helpful. And it's made me a much bigger fan of the game again. Hmm. I absolutely love the NBA again in a way I didn't. You know, you get so caught up in results. All you love is winning. And you don't necessarily love the actual product. And so I think one of the things that if I ever did get back into it, one of the things you would bring with it is just, sort of that revitalized spirit of, wow, it's an incredible blessing to even get to be part of this because it's not the real world. To see the joy 
to see the joy that the game delivers people from a fan perspective again mm-hmm. is, has been really positive. So can you just watch it like that? Because I was having a conversation with Tristan Thompson in the locker room last year, Griff, just about how he watches the game when he's watching from home. Because all these guys pay attention and they all tweet about it and they all have these reactions to it. But he said the way that he watches it, it's like he breaks down the game as it's happening. And watching it with some of the guys in the locker room, they'll be like, oh, Dwayne Wade, crossover to the left, step back jumper, right? Or J.J. Redick coming off a pin down, something along those lines. And, and Tristan said, like, he can't just watch it just to watch it. He's, he's analyzing everything that's happening because he's kind of programmed that way. Are you the same way where it's just you can't sit there and just enjoy what's happening? You have to break it down as it's happening? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have to do that. But it's also um, – it's different when you're breaking it down and analyzing it but you don't have an emotional connection to the subject matter. Gotcha. So it's okay. much easier to do it now. Yeah. And it's also – and my wife Meredith likes to make fun of me for this, but I can't ever turn off the scouting element of me. Mm-hmm. The part of me that worked in the video room and watched players over and over and over again – and was the video coach for the Phoenix Mercury for three years. I can't watch any sport played by men or women on any level and not scout it. I just can't. I'm I'm always on in that way, which is, which is funny when you're watching, you know, little league baseball or soccer and other things that I know very little about. (laughs) I need, uh, you know, we're starting to kind of ask you wrap-up questions, and we are almost done, I think. But th- there's one, um, we should ask you about JR. We should, we should get back to business for just a second uh, because he, I mean, you, did, you signed him to this deal. It was after a holdout. Uh, he got the deal, I think, after he had the Game 7 of his life. The Cavs probably wouldn't be champs if he wasn't there in Game 7. Um, and then since then, uh, he hasn't been the same. He's probably had two of the worst years of his career. So can the Cavs trade him? Uh, was, you know, looking back hindsight now being 2020, was the deal that you signed him to the right one? And what, what do you think has happened to him since? Well, I think relative to what's happened, happened to him since I, I think obviously the the personal situation that he and Shirley went through with their daughter yeah. had a great bearing on him emotionally during that period of time. I, I think the fact that he got guaranteed money moving forward really made it so he was less likely to keep himself in shape than when he was going year to year. Um, there was a reason he was so good on a year to year contract. And part of that was emotionally, he needed the carrot at the end of the year. Um, so I, I think to some degree he shows up out of shape and then he gets injured getting himself in shape. And so I, I hope what we see this year is a J.R. Smith that's hell-bent on proving something and, and shows up in shape. And if he does that and doesn't get injured, I think he's still capable of playing high-level basketball. But he hasn't been motivated to be that since he signed the deal. So you would have to say in that situation the deal wasn't the right deal because it didn't bring out the best in J.R. Do you think – is he – I mean, has he played himself out of a trade? I don't know if he's played himself out of a trade as much as his contract probably put him in a tough spot to be traded. Um, 
you know, they, they made a deal when they brought in George Hill that was basically moving some money for less bad money. So if you're going to trade J.R. Smith, you're going to incrementally get out of it. You're never going to just trade it for an expiring contract or money that you feel better about. So I think to some degree, because Ty Lu believes in J.R. to the extent that he does, you'd rather keep J.R. and see what he's capable of giving you than take what might be bad money in the form of a player he wouldn't believe in. All right, so now we, we are going to wrap up, and I'm going to say some very nice things about you. But before we do that, um, tell us – so, uh, you know, we're a month away from when from training camp starts. So tell us what NBA work you are going to be doing this year. So I anticipate that I'll be back with NBA TV this year. I'm certainly going to be there September 24th and 25th for the start of their preview shows, which run all that week. Um, I loved working with Turner and the people at NBA TV were tremendous. Uh, Coach Fratello, who lives in Cleveland, was a big part of sort of the group embracing me to the level that they did. So I'm grateful to Mike for that. Um, I think I'll continue to do that. And uh, we'll probably continue to do the SiriusXM NBA radio stuff and continue to consult with prospective ownership groups. And if one of those groups gets a team and it makes sense, then maybe I'll I'll be back on the other side someday. But for now, I'm, I'm really comfortable doing what I'm doing. What I wanted to say was um, you can't – unless you've done it either as a general manager or as a coach or as a teammate or as a media member, you, you can't understand what it's like to live in the LeBron – the LeBronosphere. So that, that's one thing. And then you think about uh, the first two years of that, the, the coach uh, w- was David Blatt, who is a, um, he's a character to begin with, and, and he had come from overseas, uh, from Israel, and, and had brought with him just a, a backstory and a personality that was just wild for the times. Um, and then you throw in a Kyrie Irving, and then you throw in a Kevin Love, and then you throw in the, the worldwide attention that was paid to this team, you know, media outlets from across the country spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to cover you guys day in and day out. And one of the people uh, they, that was assigned to you uh, was this uh, bulldog politics reporter who hadn't been in sports for <laughs> I don't know, you know, six, seven, eight years at, at that point. Um, and you uh, obviously did what all the fans want you to do, which is build a championship. But you did so much more than that, um, you know, bridged, bridged whatever gap there was while David Blatt was here because of just some of the, the communication issues that, that, that were there. Um, and obviously, I mean, you had in LeBron – you know, he would openly take swipes at you because really he was pissed at Dan. Um, and you had Kyrie and his enormous talent and enormous ego and his feelings being hurt because of LeBron. And you had Kevin. Um, and then you had, you know, and it, all the while you, uh, you know, kind of helped me get through those for that first year and a half to really understand the job and, and understand the NBA in, in ways that, you know, you just couldn't uh, unless you had lived it. So I think 
I mean, in 90 seconds, like I've just scraped the tip of the iceberg for the, for what you actually did here. But but I want to thank you publicly, and and certainly all all of Cleveland uh, does as well for all that other stuff other than helping me. Um, but you <laughs> you just really, I mean, your uh, your time here obviously is is looked back upon fondly by all uh, for many reasons. But for me, it, it was that. So I just want to say thank. Thank you for that, um, and, and, and thank you, you know, just thank you for all you've done. Well, I appreciate it very much, and we were in a really good position at the time we were there. It was it was fascinating. You know, we got to see through the, the plan that we started with Chris Grant and Mike Blastone, and we got to see that vision through to the end, and we were blessed to be there. You know, every situation calls for a particular skill set, and I think I was really fortunate that what I was particularly good at might have worked at that moment. And part of what I was good at was making fun of you for your t-shirts. So you're welcome. I'm, I'm here for you anytime. And my short, do you remember how offended you were when I would wear shorts? Oh, everyone was offended, Joe. Everyone. Well, I was jealous. So I was jealous, right? I mean, <laughs> Lloyd, Lloyd and I have similar calves, so I don't wear, you know, shorts often. And I'm nowhere near as pretty as McMiniman. So... You know, I was jealous, quite frankly. It was uncomfortable for me that you could pull that off. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I work hours a day to be able to wear those shorts. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we loved getting a chance to do this. We could talk to you for many more hours, but yep. I think we'll stop it there. Appreciate you joining us, Griff. It was, uh, it was awesome. And I know that, that fans still talk about you in glowing terms, being on the radio and doing podcasts and fighting with people on Twitter, you are known among the Cavs fan base as like the guy who can turn uh, water into wine, <laughs> which is perfect for you, right? Yeah, it's right up my alley now that I have such a burgeoning bat mitzvah and uh, wedding business. It's great. <laughs> uh, once again. Thank you, fellas. I really enjoyed it. You yeah, got it, Griff. Good to have him. Good to have you. And uh, folks, you've been listening uh, for the past hour or so to the Wine and Gold talk podcast um you know thank you for tuning in and and for reading us all on cleveland.com and for chris fedor this is joe varden and uh, we'll be back with you again soon